Hello and welcome. You're listening to the all-new Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. We'll be here every week with a panel of guests from the world of business and beyond to take a look at the numbers that make up the news. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and straight into your own device wherever you are in the world via podcast. This Sunday marked the 43rd International Women's Day and with it a broader retrospective on gender equality in Australia. In the corporate world, despite great strides forward in gender diversity and equitable pay, a closer analysis shows that there are all too familiar barriers to entry, such as a lower number of females in management roles, and sexual discrimination are still very much present in the Australian workforce. A recent research paper by the University of Technology Business School has highlighted a handful of cases from Australia and abroad that have increased the participation and advancement of women in the workplace. A 2018 McKinley Global Research Study calculated that the benefit to the global economy of women participating identically to men could contribute $28 trillion to global GDP. That's a 26% growth by 2025 compared to business as usual. So, usually in business where things are profitable, they're usually popular. But as the nature of the workplace evolves to become more inclusive, so too must the approach to preventing and responding to workplace sexual harassment. In a national survey conducted in 2018 by the Australian Human Rights Commission, almost two in five women, or 39%, and just over one in four men, have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace in the last five years. The overwhelming response to the survey was that the current system for addressing workplace sexual harassment in Australia is complex and confusing for victims and employers to understand and navigate. Last week, the Australian Human Rights Commission released their Sexual Harassment National Inquiry Report, with a swathe of recommendations on how to better combat sexual harassment. To discuss striking the equitable balance in the workplace is our panel of guests. In the studio today is Dr Alice Klattner, Senior Lecturer at the UTS Business School. Dr Klattner is the co-author of the new research report, Improving Gender Diversities in Companies, commissioned by the UTS Business School. And joining Dr Klattner is fellow co-author of the report, Professor Thomas Clark, a professor of management at the UTS Business School. We're also joined by Catherine O'Regan, Executive Director at the Sydney Business Chamber. And joining us via link from Melbourne is the Australian Human Rights Commission's Commissioner for Sex Discrimination, Kate Jenkins. Thank you all for joining us. Dr Klattner, there's a wealth of data that shows that discrimination against women in the labour market is simply not profitable. If there was any other economic factor that was cutting a potential $28 trillion of global productivity, it would be considered a doomsday scenario. At a glance, what are some of the key factors that have kept women from getting an equitable share of the labour market? Immediately, you think of the possible biological differences, which is that many women, but not all, um, take some time off mid-career to start a family. That's just one, one issue. Um, that perhaps isn't dealt with very well in in the workplace. Other issues after that would maybe include childcare and tax treatment of um, childcare and the fact that it's very expensive in some countries, particularly here. And and this is where our report comes in because we look at all those stages of a career pipeline. So from the very um, early stages of being recruited, um, moving through uh, promotion processes and right up to the stages of um, senior leadership, there seems to be discrimination, whether it be um, direct or just indirect. There's obviously been a great deal of, of legislative, social and economic change 
over the last decade that has advocated for equitable pay between men and women. Um, now, your report actually cites a European Union study that found that across EU states, women on average earn 16% less per hour than their male colleagues. But at the same time, it found that over the last five years, the gender pay gap in the EU has plateaued. In Australia, the national gender pay gap has hovered between 14% and 19% for the last two decades. Do you think Australia's corporate world is dealing effectively with gender equality in the labour market? And do we also run the risk of having a similar plateau effect? Yes, I think that pay gap's been fairly persistent. Um, and and again, it's very complex, the reasons behind that. Um, and, and I think this is, we're only really just quite recently getting to tackle that that and could because first of all you've got to measure it um, and understand where the gap is before you can even think about tackling it and trying to um, reduce that gap um, and I know in Europe now that they're actually um, legislating in this area to, to force businesses to do something about it um, but here I st- think we're still in the earlier stages of, of just trying to measure and understand why and where it happened. I've been in organisations where they've said we don't have a gender pay gap. Um, we've done the work, we've looked at role A, B and done the comparable sort of assessment. But when you look at the skills and competencies and the level of responsibility in those roles, they're not actually comparable. So I think what is being a bit of a barrier and sometimes a bit of an excuse um, is that business says, we've, we've already done it and it's okay, or maybe we um, haven't got the resources to really understand and peel back those layers to get a robust methodology to then provide the insight to take the action. Mm. And it's becoming more and more noticeable or more and more direct as as more research is revealed to show the the enormous amounts of of profit that are being lost by not giving an equitable share of the labour market between men and women. Uh, Has that been one of the driving factors for companies to start to acknowledge that this needs to be tackled? Is it just simply the the bottom line? I think that the fact that our report was funded by a large investment firm gives you a small clue because there is this pressure um, from investors now who genuinely believe that having better gender diversity it means better performance in a company. So there was pressure coming from the people funding these companies to explain their efforts towards gender diversity um, and indeed to understand um, and measure whether there is equality existing in companies. Mm. Um, Now, Professor Clark, the world of business has has obviously changed quite fundamentally over the last two decades. and We now live in a world where a smartphone can operate as a trading floor. Um, Now, this newfound mobility, it's spawned a number of of new buzzwords for the modern labour market. Um, And one of them that features quite prominently in your report is the anytime, anywhere performance model. Um, Why has this become such a distinct barrier for gender diversity? Well, firstly, we should clarify that um, uh, women generally have taken um, more naturally to the new technology, and particularly the potential of laptops and mobile phones. It's it's um, certainly transformed um, our uh, employment practices, but women have been at the forefront in employing those technologies. But when you attach to those technologies the possibility of people being accessible at any time and anywhere, then that begins to intrude on what many women would think is um, 
a priority that they must attend to, uh, which which would be the the social and, and caring responsibilities. And often, men have uh, been excused these responsibilities uh, in um, a, what is a, an imbalanced, you know, uh, disproportionate <laughs> distribution of uh, work and responsibility. So uh, unfortunately, although the technology is uh, a great liberator for women, the accompanying employment practices have have not um, served women's cause uh, very well. What should be measured is the contribution that you make to the business. Uh, what shouldn't be men- measured is is your capacity to be uh, anywhere at any time. I mean, in some jobs that might be really important but in most jobs it's it's certainly not vital and it's it's just a, a convenience of the employer to demand it has the culture kept up with the technology or are the rules that are governing the corporate world maybe a few years behind where the technology currently stands well, I wouldn't underestimate the uh, residual influence of entrenched male prejudice. Uh, on the television news last <laughs> night, there was um, there was uh, a, a woman pilot who was fully qualified uh, and experienced to become a commercial airline pilot, the first in Australia, and ANSET, now a defunct airline, uh, uh, refused. They just simply refused because she was a woman um, until she had took them to the um, Equal Opportunities Tribunal and uh, was... Uh, her case was um, awarded to her, and, and, and she became a pilot. She's been a commercial airlines pilot for the last 50 years. Um, and um, uh, women have had to break through those kinds of barriers of prejudice, which have been universal and enduring, but um, increasingly they are doing so successfully and proving that they can make major contributions to businesses and actually improve the, the performance of businesses consistently by their presence. Now, Kate, in your work as the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, the clear disparity in pay, promotions and just opportunities in general between men and women must have played quite heavily in the many submissions um, that you received while you were collating a study on sexual harassment in Australia's workplaces. What are, at a glance, some of the biggest revelations to come out of the Commission's inquiry about the nature of the Australian workplace in 2020? Reflecting off the back of that conversation, it was really clear that the key power disparity at play as a driver of sexual harassment was gender inequality. And so those conversations about workplaces and the really deeply entrenched systemic and attitudinal barriers to you know, ensuring equality between the sexes in the workplace were absolutely high in the conversations we had and the consultations across the country. The the key sort of findings and then really our purpose was to find a solution, a go-forward solution. There is absolutely appetite to change this. But the key finding, which was off the back of the survey and then confirmed in the submissions and consultations, was that sexual harassment is almost an everyday experience for some people in Australian workplaces. Um, across the board, one in three Australian workers had experienced sexual harassment in the last five years, and that's an increase on the one in five that we found in 2012. So it's not declining just with sort of cultural change. Uh, what we in particular found was that there was a really 
low actual real understanding of what sexual harassment was. Um, and at its most simple, sexual harassment is unwelcome sexual offensive conduct at work. And there was definitely confusion about what's okay and what's not okay at work. There was a consistent underestimation of the harm both to individuals of sexual harassment but also to the economy. So for the first time, we had some uh, economic modelling done by Deloitte Access Economics that uh, measures in 2018 the cost to the Australian economy was $3.8 billion, but a large whack of that $2.6 billion was basically in productivity and workplace costs. So it really shows you that it is the employers and the businesses Catherine, obviously, as we've just brought up, the rise of the gig economy, the change from a traditional workstation into a more sort of fluid working environment has muddied the waters for for a lot of things in the Australian corporate world. Now, with your sort of boots on the ground experience, how has the way that we view the workplace changed in Australia, maybe over the last decade? Yeah, big question, but um, picking up a couple of points in the sense of I think there's been a cultural change um, and, and Thomas you made reference to you know there still is a significant amount of that unconscious bias in the workplace just um, recently I was even sitting in a meeting where we were designing you know what could actually be a small group to uh, get the beginning phase of a project work and um, and in that group it was suggested that there was these four people but these four people were all men and so the suggestion and this happens you know every day to many many people is oh well wait a minute the um, the group that we've chosen well there's no women in those roles so it has to be these four men um, but oh we're only at the design phase so it doesn't matter we don't need gender diversity at this particular point and so you kind of it was almost bringing that to the surface saying let's have a think about that and um, and sort of call out that unconscious bias um, whereas potentially years ago you would have let that slide so I think right now it's almost incumbent on businesses to just keep thinking about how can we do better you know it has been highlighted in this report you know the productivity the commercial benefit for big and small businesses to do something, to take some action. And if we're working with technology, we do have to think about other channels where there are communication issues and how we say things, who we say it to, um, how we behave both overtly and sort of more subtly is is really important. But um, I'm kind of thinking that we're in a great place to be able to say everybody can make a difference Um, to gender diversity, we all can take some kind of action, whether it's calling out that particular lack of gender diversity in that small team, um, or think about how you structure your boards, how you do your governance. And probably the other thing which um, I've been particularly close to more recently is, you know, how do you generate a nighttime economy? And, you know, 87% of women get harassed on the street. They've all experienced something like that. Now, if you translate that to a business, I'm travelling to and from work. Well, 
I won't take the shift that's going to be at night or at a certain place, which is just a little bit more difficult to get to to there. So my personal economic welfare is impacted, but so is my employer. So I think some of the action that big and small businesses can take, both within the walls and the confines of the, the building and the operating environment of work, but also think more broadly about to and from work, how do you get there, or how can my business engage more women, because particularly we're challenged by economic times right now, the more patrons I get, the better. So I think technology can actually be our friend here um, if we just take a measured approach and start calling out some things which I don't think anyone should find acceptable, let alone any sort of gender bias to it. Mm. And as you've already mentioned, we are currently in quite dire economic straits, mm. many would say. Now, if, if profits are suffering so significantly from, from this lack of balance, is it possible or is there an argument to be made for leaving this to the market? If, if companies are starting to acknowledge that they need to have structures at play to allow for better diversity, to give women equal, if not more, opportunities to to take senior executive roles in, in their corporations. How has this not already occurred is it really the question if, if there's so much money being lost by a, an inequitable balance between men and women, how, how has it gone on so long if companies have clearly acknowledged that it's, it's a big problem for them? Yeah, look, I think, and I'm a, you know, all for the, the free market operation, but it is definitely one thing where um, often businesses aren't sure that it's even existing, let alone how can you address that particular issue and just making reference to that unconscious bias that's around, um, but also thinking more broadly about your business. You, know, you can actually target certain segments, but we aren't often targeting or have data that says um, it's this particular segment that can really be important and bring that uplift to the economy. And a, you know, another example is, you know, and data is fantastic, um, and we have through technology greater access to data and big data and how we can segment our um, customers. You know, I do find it interesting. I was looking at a CRM model the other day and said, can I actually cut this by gender? And the answer was no. So, so we haven't built into our systems, I think, and our practices ways to start actually shedding light, you know, putting the spotlight on the gender issue and where you can make a difference by taking action or, or improving your market. So they, they don't know what they don't know. This is where our report came from in that, that most businesses do want to do something about this, but they're not sure exactly how to and the idea of our research was to find some really simple case studies that had been successful with little practical um, and quite innovative things that companies had actually done because I think there are many businesses out there that are setting targets for gender diversity um, but then they're sort of struggling to work out exactly how to get there. Um, so there were just simple things in our report, like um, perhaps looking a bit more widely when you're recruiting people and then adding in some training processes um, or just interviewing your staff to find out where they're struggling and what they would, where they would like to see changes. So um, that's what we were trying to discover in our, in our report. So the report actually refers to companies that have taken positive initiatives and succeeded with them. And these are forward-looking companies that are more dynamic and uh, and more successful than the rest of the market. Um, to return to your question, the, the rest of the market needs a wake-up call. 
that they too can adopt these kinds of initiatives at each stage in the life cycle of women from promotion, you know, through from recruitment through promotion um, to, to return to work after maternity, uh, to leadership roles and, and uh, building a culture in the business that encourages and facilitates uh, women's contribution in advance. This is a powerful resource that's not being <laughs> utilized and it is the key to enhance productivity of businesses and it just needs f some facilitation. But what one of the conclusions of our report is that um, advancing the potential of women is not as difficult as it might sound, even though it's been an entrenched problem for such a long time. And there are means to uh, promote um, the, the talents of women within existing businesses and to prove the worth for the business. We'll just quickly jump back to the National Inquiry into Sexual Harassment. Uh, one of the clear takeaways was that the current model for dealing with sexual harassment complaints is fundamentally flawed. The inquiry cites the model as being reactive, complaint-based approach. Um, now, Kate, what are some of the major recommendations for improving the system? Yes, and off the back of that conversation too, I was really passionately listening to the idea that the market might solve the problem. And the problem is the market has primarily valued men, so the you know the leaders of the current system very much um, have a particular way of approaching it. Uh, our inquiry um, found that uh, unintentionally, so I think consistent with the other panellists, um, there is a lot of focus and desire to change this. Uh, but some of the things that we have with good intention believed were helping things, uh, our inquiry found actually might have been having the opposite effect. Employers have introduced policies, training and complaints procedures since the laws were first introduced in 1984. And interestingly, some of the things that we found were, for example, the training in some cases where it's delivered in a sort of a compulsory and very authoritarian way can actually alienate some of the um, participants that men in particular who really were questioning this to be called in and told you, you know, you do this, you must stop and we're going to sack you if, uh, if you don't, uh, might ironically have caused them to be more inclined to do that behaviour, which is absolutely was never the intention. So our, our recommendations on what a different um, focus would look uh, acknowledge and recognise that by and large Australian workers, men and women, do not want to complain. We're not a country that embraces complaining. There's very much the take a joke, get along, don't win, don't complain. And so the experience of Australian workers is if I complain, I'll somehow become the villain here. So we heard that people would like smaller, lower level um, abilities to speak up or raise concerns, but without it getting into a big disciplinary process. How often was it described to you, that particular scenario, of someone feeling as though they couldn't come forward with an issue because they felt as though their career would suffer for it? Uh, that I would almost say that was the most consistent message through 
uh, both the research and the submissions. So our stats tell us that only 17% of people who've experienced sexual harassment will ever raise it with anyone, either in their workplace or with a regulator. And that's been pretty consistent over the last sort of um, 12 or so years that we've done surveys. Catherine, is there a level of, of pressure upon female uh, employees to uh, pass a blind eye to that boys' club culture that seems to be a constant presence across certainly a lot of the submissions that were a part of the National Inquiry. I think that it's um, interesting there that what uh, was said that, that 17%, you know, that figure's been reasonably constant in terms of reporting. But I, I do think is not, not, a cost, not only a cost on the individuals involved in you know, those big issues when they do get to and escalate to a point which is quite dramatic, but you know the cost of business and the disruption and all those sorts of changes. So I do applaud that if there's a greater focus and there's a better, a better business case to focus at the front end in terms of changing that culture, um, you know, excuses like, you know, no one complained, um, that's what we all do, you know, we know is just not acceptable anymore but it's going to take time for those sorts of things to actually change in businesses um, because I think there has been you know a mode shift and a mood shift to to really start thinking about how we can make a difference. Professor Clark your research paper cites a phenomenon known as the attrition of female executives. Can you explain briefly what that means? Well, simply that even uh, employers who do um, have a balance of uh, genders um, at entry point, uh, even even in those more enlightened employers, it's often found to be the case that there is a gradual loss of uh, women's representation uh, with uh, seniority. So the middle management has fewer fewer women. Uh, the senior management very few and the leading executives are all men um, and it's this pipeline of uh, executive um, potential which is which is structurally closed uh, to many women why because often um, a definition of leadership potential is a sort of absolute commitment to the company uh, you know uh, extending your hours into the evening or early mornings and so on um it again it's it's not the the amount of time you put in with the company it's 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 the results of your contribution that should count and women should not be discriminated against if they want to lead lead a more balanced lifestyle in fact a, a more balanced lifestyle would help men as well as women in their employment I could think of one, and it's actually directed at men, which is why I think it's quite interesting, which is um, paternity leave. So, for example, and I think um, it comes back to cultural issues, which um, we were talking about earlier. If you can change the culture so that the workplace flexibility that's on offer is actually used, because I think in the past, sort of, although men maybe have been able to take paternity leave, they just haven't done it. So... And if men do that, then that frees up women to go back to work earlier. So I think it's about changing the culture to make it okay for people to to use all the benefits that companies are starting to bring in rather than feeling that they can't do so for some reason. Now, I'll throw this last question out to everyone, so feel free to dive in. Given what we have discussed over the last half hour, where does gender equality in Australia, in corporate Australia, go from here? 
Um, I was just going to jump in there and say what I would do is really challenge everybody to see what they can do. You know, this isn't a cultural shift, as you said, that it will happen overnight. There will be initiatives at a top-down level as well as from a bottom-up one. Um, you know, the idea of you know structural changes and um, you know, do you change leadership roles? Do you you know change representation throughout the organisation? Can be just as powerful as some of the ones that happen further down where you have you know, a role model and someone who um, you know, really starts to embrace what you can be like um, when it comes to leadership roles. So I always encourage everyone, you stop talking about it and actually every day do one thing that can actually make a difference to gender diversity. In my role at the Human Rights Commission, I'm often in the middle of the intersection between what government is doing, what workplaces are doing, and the broader community initiatives. And I'm really um, convinced that the mutually reinforcing learnings and actions in all of those spaces will accelerate progress in workplaces and in business, as well as in other areas of our lives. So I think that business being part of that broader picture actually is going to be the key to the acceleration which, as we've discussed, will also lead to more productive, more profitable and better workplaces for all of us. That's about it for today's show. Thank you to our guests, UTS Business School's Dr Alice Klattner, Professor Thomas Clark, Sydney Business Chamber's Catherine O'Regan and the Australian Human Rights Commission's Commissioner for Sex Discrimination, Catherine Jenkins. Think Business Futures is recorded at the studios of 2SER Sydney and produced with the assistance of the UTS Business School. Make sure to catch the full show on your favourite podcast app and don't forget to spread the good word of the show with your friends. I've been your host, Max Tillman. See you again next week. 